A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Instant messages, photos, entertainment, maps, games, activity trackers, calendars, emails, social media. Even if you worry about using your smartphone too much, the idea of simply unplugging and ditching it altogether just doesn't feel like an option for most of us. So how can we strike the right balance between our tech usage and important stuff like interacting with our family and friends in the world around us when we're not looking at a screen? It's a topic the Outside podcast gets into in a new four-part series called The Nature Cure. In the first episode, Outside's editor Christopher Kai speaks to Cal Newport, who wants us to reimagine our relationship with technology. It's a lifestyle Newport calls digital minimalism, and it's the opposite of the impulse that makes us want to sign up to all those shiny new apps and services in the hope that one day we might actually get some value from them. Well, there's a shift happening now as people are starting to move away from maximalism, which I think tells us something about its source, which in my opinion is just the exuberance that comes along with any technological innovation. So smartphones were exciting. I mean, this is a really interesting piece of technology. You know, Web 2.0, that was exciting, right? This is a new piece of technology. And whenever we have new technology enter the scene, there tends to be a period of exuberance about 10 years long or so, in which people just embrace lots of different things. It's a period of experimentation. Let me try this out. This seems valuable. What about this? It says our culture tries to renegotiate its relationship with its tools. And I think it's telling that we're about 10 years out from the introduction of the iPhone. So as we hit this sort of magic 10-year period, the exuberance begins to wear off and we begin to become more wary about the consequences of that maximalism. So I don't think there was anything particularly negative or surprising about the fact that we all went through this period of maximalism. I think that's sort of a healthy response to trying to figure out what should we do with these new technologies in our culture. But I also think it's equally healthy that as time wears on, we move past that sort of initial naive response and start thinking more critically because people are beginning to see the trade-off. Like, wait a second, you know, all of these things which are sort of vaguely promising to maybe be important in high tech are very concretely keeping me away from things that I know for sure are very important for my career, very important for my life. And so in Newport's view, smartphones themselves aren't to blame. Last January, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled, Steve Jobs never wanted us to use our iPhones like this. By like this, he means like the constant companion model. You know, the idea that we need to take our phone on every trail run or check it as soon as we wake up. Okay, but how does he know what Steve Jobs intended? Well, I mean, I went back and talked to his head designer, (laughs) so so that's one way. You can also go back and watch the keynote address or just uh, rack your memory for what your digital life was like back in, let's say, 2007 or 2008. And all these strands of evidence point towards the same conclusion, which was the iPhone as originally promoted was a much more minimalist tool. I mean, Steve Jobs saw this as a way to be a better phone 
than had ever existed before, to be a better music player than had better existed before, and to combine them into one object because it seemed to him quite inelegant that you would carry, let's say, an iPod next to your Nokia, both in the same pocket. Uh, so it was really a tool that was meant to do a couple things that we already did and already love, but do those things better. There was no app store. There were apps on it, but these weren't things meant to dominate your time. It was like a calculator, which is useful. Or maps. We already use maps. This is a better map experience. And this was classic Steve Jobs. Figure out what's important to people. Make the experience even better. Nothing about that implied that you should look at your phone all the time. And people didn't look at their phone all the time. And it wasn't something that was in the air. That actually came later, even though we forgot that that's not the way it used to be. If you want to blame somebody for your phone addiction, Newport says, don't blame Apple. Blame social media. Well, social media and capitalism. As Newport points out, it wasn't until big companies like Facebook and Twitter began approaching their massive IPOs that they also began a massive psychological experiment, making their services more enticing on mobile devices. So core to this shift from user acquisition to IPO mode was figuring out how can we get people to massively increase their engagement with our services. And what they figured out once they started looking at this problem seriously is that we need to shift all of our attention to mobile. We need to get these things onto the phone. And we got to get people to keep checking it on their phone, which I want to remind us was something that was very unusual in the context of social media in an earlier age. But the great shift that they did, and this was a brilliant business move, is that they transformed the social media experience so that it was no longer about you post things, your friends post things and you read each other's posts. They shifted it from that to there is a constant incoming stream of social approval indicators, right? This is where we got the like button. This is where we got photo auto tags. This is where we got favorites and in Instagram, retweets and Twitter. That now every time you tap the app, there's going to be some collection of indicators that other people are thinking about you. And sometimes when you click on the app, there'll be a lot. Hey, people are really happy and thinking about you a lot. Sometimes there'll be very little. So it's very intermittent which hijacks our dopamine system and makes it almost impossible not to keep checking. And that experience completely transformed us from, oh, I go to this website sometimes to see you know, what my friends are up to into I have to check this thing all the time because at any moment there might be new social approval indicators waiting for me. And this was incredibly massively profitable for these companies. It made them incredibly massively profitable. But the side effect was it completely changed our relationships from our phone. They went from being these Steve Jobs style tools that we occasionally put the work for some very specific uses, like I want to listen to a song or look up directions, and made them into constant companions that we check all the time, like air traffic controllers. Newport wasn't the first to report on this. A few years ago, a gifted former Google engineer named Tristam Harris made headlines as a Silicon Valley whistleblower. At Stanford, Harris had trained in the university's renowned persuasive technology lab, essentially learning the latest methods for using technology to influence human behavior. When his own startup was acquired by Google, he went to work for the company and began to see how they and others were using psychology to capture users' attention. And he didn't like it. He wrote a Jerry Maguire-style manifesto that was even circulated around the offices. But when company leaders largely sidelined him, he left Google and started going public with his concerns. He made his biggest splash on 60 Minutes. I guess Anderson Cooper was the host. Anderson Cooper uh, pulled out his smartphone and said, so are you saying this is like a slot machine in my pocket? And Tristan said, yes, that's exactly right. This thing is a slot machine. How is that a slot machine? Well, 
every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. This is one way to um, hijack people's minds and create a habit for, to form a habit. What you do because is because he has seen it from the other side. He knew that. There's even research that made its way to Silicon Valley from Las Vegas, where they had found out the optimal reinforcement schedules for electronic slot machines. So that research had made its way to the social media companies in, in uh, Silicon Valley when they were trying to figure out this reinforcement model. And so uh, he famously called it a slot machine and confirmed it was a slot machine in your pocket and made it clear that that, that metaphor is actually somewhat literal. <laughs> it is designed in some sense to be a slot machine in your pocket. So he was really one of the first whistleblowers to come out of Silicon Valley and say, you're not using your phone so much because you're lazy or because you're easily distractible. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to make sure that that's the inevitable outcome. And is there anyone at any of the particular social media sites that push back against this and say, oh, that's not what we're doing? Or what's the, what's the counter argument that they make? about the value of their platforms um, despite these issues? They don't like to talk about this issue, which is, which is interesting. I've been noticing I've become an expert in social media PR strategy. And what I can tell, especially in Facebook's case, what they've decided is they really don't want to play in the playground of addiction, compulsive use, overuse, the idea that people are on Facebook so much that it's, it's keeping them away from things in their life that's, that's more valuable, more important, because that's a place where they can't really improve things. The more you use it, the more money they make, right? So that's that's a dangerous territory for them to argue. So what they've done, I think, some, very effectively, and the, and the national media has definitely followed their lead here, is they've tried to keep the focus on other issues with social media that they can address without hitting the bottom line of the more minutes, the better. So this is why you see Mark Zuckerberg, for example, talk a lot about data privacy, end-to-end encryption, uh, data portability, or you see a lot of talk now about, let's say, content, misinformation, the definition of hate speech, what's censorship, what's not censorship, right? These type of topics, they're willing to engage in them because, you know, they can make moves, they can, they can try to make those better, they can have fixes, they can discuss them, and none of it gets to the bottom line. But when I'm on the road talking to real people, you know, why are you why are you uneasy about social media? No one ever says because Cambridge Analytica. No one ever says because I think the data portability standards of Facebook are subpar. They say because I'm looking at this when I'm with my kids and I know I shouldn't and I can't help myself. Some of the outside podcast hosted by Peter Frick Wright and produced by Michael Roberts and Robbie Carver. And that's from an episode called The Radically Simple Digital Diet We All Need, featuring an interview with digital minimalist Cal Newport. <laughs> 